Christian, we are starting a brand new series today, uh, generally not part of my life. I love starting new series. Uh, generally speaking, we walk through books of the Bible. We spent uh, the better part of this year and last year, uh, almost 18 months in the story of Acts. Uh, and I've been really excited. I've been thinking about planning, praying, preparing for uh, this fall series. It's going to be a very short series, about six weeks long, and it's just simply entitled, Jesus is not part of my life. And so I wanted to start by asking you uh, maybe an obvious question. Is Jesus part of your life? Uh, you don't have to raise your hand, but just think through that. Is Jesus part of your life? And I'm going to guess that there's going to be some here would say, yeah, absolutely. Uh, some of you would say, he's actually a really big piece of my life, the biggest piece of my life that I can think of. And I'm going to guess that there's some of you who would say, you know what, I'm trying to actually figure that out. I'm trying to figure out what piece, how Jesus actually fits into uh, my life. Now, again, as we begin this series, I wanted to share with you uh, what my hope for you is, what my hope for all of us is as we begin this series. And it would just simply be this, that about six weeks from now, all of us, everyone that's going to be here today uh, at the 11 a.m., at the 5.30 p.m., I hope that all of us, six weeks from now, would be able to say with great confidence and conviction, yeah, Jesus is not part of my life anymore. And I know that sounds strange, but that's what I'm actually hoping will happen in our time together on Sunday mornings, Sunday evenings, uh, is that we would have an entire church of people that would smile and have great confidence say, you know what, Jesus is no longer part of my life. Now, I know that sounds odd, like, Mike, I, I thought Jesus was supposed to be part of my life, uh, and I just want to encourage you, not anymore, uh, not anymore. For years, I lived uh, what I would just call, and I'm sure others have called this, this as well, a very compartmentalized faith, and con consequently, I had a very compartmentalized life. Uh, meaning my life resembled that of a pie chart, and Jesus was a piece of that pie. Now, there was times in my life where Jesus was the biggest piece, sometimes a smaller piece, sometimes just kind of resembled all the other pieces, uh, as it were, uh, but he was a big piece of my life. Now, I didn't set out to have a compartmentalized life. I didn't set out to have a compartmentalized faith. It wasn't like I woke up one day and whiteboarded out my dreams of how can I live in a very compartmentalized way. Uh, I realized that I was living a very compartmentalized life when I started listening to the questions that I was actually asking people. I was asking people questions like this, and these are questions you might ask yourself. Well, how's your work life? How's your work life going? Uh, how is your married, married life going? How is your parenting life going? Uh, how are, is your like friendship, relationship life going? And then I would always ask the question, well, how is your spiritual life? I would always ask those questions, and not necessarily in that order, but when I started listening to myself and listening to the questions I was asking, uh, I realized, wow, I really view my life and consequently other people's lives as compartments. We have our married life, we have our dating life, we have our friendship life, our neighborhood life, our career life, our play life, our spiritual life. And again, I know it sounds very subtle, but these questions revealed to me that I viewed my spiritual life and the spiritual life of other people as just a piece of their life rather than actually their entire life. Now, 
I'm going to guess many of you can relate with having a compartmentalized faith, compartmentalized life, but why do we do that? I just want you to think about this for a second. Why do we do that? I I can't be the only one who has lived a better part of his life uh, having compartments in my life, my career, my marriage, my parenting, my faith, my, my job, my role, my vocation. Why is it that we have compartments that we like to fit things nicely into. Uh, Now, your list might look very different than my list, but this to me is a very personal series uh, because I really lived with Jesus as part of my life for most of my life. Uh, And so as I've prayed about and examined and journaled down some, why did I do that? What was happening in me that I just had Jesus as part of my life? And again, these are my three. They might not resonate with you, but as I share my three, I would ask you to think about, if you were going to come up with a list of three things, why is it that we have compartmentalized lives? My first one that I wrote down was control. That's why I had a compartmentalized life, control. Even though I knew I couldn't control my life, I tried. I would try to manipulate outcomes and situations. I'd even manipulate people constantly thinking, how can I get this situation or this person to do what I think I need done uh, that will ultimately benefit me? And so for me, a compartmentalized life gave me, even though it was a lie, it gave me the false assurance that I was in some semblance of control. And so a big verse in my life is just Matthew 6, 25, where Jesus says, Michael, do not worry about your life. That's Jesus's way of saying, Michael, you don't need to worry and obsess about all of the details of your life. I have you. I have you. So control, that was a big area of my life, of why I kept Jesus in a certain piece or pie or compartment in my life. A second one was this, fear. The second reason why I lived compartmentalized faith was fear. And fear was rooted in the belief that God was going to hold out on me. I knew what I wanted, or at least I knew I thought what I wanted. I knew what I needed, or at least thought I needed. And if I went all in with Jesus, I had this fear that he was going to hold out of me. I had this fear that he was not going to give me what I want, and he wasn't going to give me what I needed. And so if I just kept Jesus in a certain compartment, and I had all these other compartments, I could try to organize and orchestrate my life based around my needs and my wants. So there was a huge fear Uh, Mark Batterson, in a book just published about a year ago called All In, uh, just said it very well uh, when he said, we want everything God has to offer without giving anything up. We want to buy in without selling out. We're afraid that if we don't hold out on God, we'll miss out on what this life has to offer. It's a lie. God is not holding out on you. But I believed it. I believed God was holding out on me, and so I kept Jesus in a certain compartment as peace or part of my life. Last one I would share with you uh, is identity. First one was control. The second one was fear. And the third one for me on my personal list of why I had a compartmentalized faith was identity. My identity was rooted in what I did, accomplished, achieved, rather than in whom I actually belonged to. So for years, I looked for value, meaning, significance, worth in the things that I did, in the things that people would say of me. That's where my identity came from. That's where my identity was rooted in, rather than being rooted deeply in what God actually had to say about me. Uh, Again, quoting Mark Batterson from his book, All In, he says, you can base your identity on a thousand things. 
The degrees you've earned, the positions you hold, the salary you make, the trophies you've won, the hobbies you have, the way you look, the way you dress, or even the car you drive. But if you base your identity on any of those temporal things, your identity is a house of cards. There is only one solid foundation, Jesus Christ. There is only one place in which to find your true identity and eternal security, what Christ has done for you. Now, this is a question that I wrestled with when it came down to my identity. Living very compartmentalized, keeping Jesus as part of my life because of control, because of fear, and because of identity. And this is the question that I was faced with. Will I find my identity in who I am or in whose I am? Now, I want you to wrestle with that question. Will I find my identity in who I am or in whose I am? Meaning, will I allow Jesus to define me or will uh, I allow the other pieces of the pie, the other parts of my life? Will I still look for my identity in my career, in my marriage, in my parenting, in my friend- friendships, in my play life, in my whatever? Will I look for identity, significance, value, worth, and all of those things? So will my identity be in who I am or in whose I am? Uh, Bob Goff uh, wrote a great book called Love Does, and he talked a lot about identity, and he said this. This is what Jesus asks of us. He asks if we'll give up that thing we're so proud of, that thing we believe causes us to matter in the eyes of the world, and give it up to follow him. And he's asking us, will you take what you think defines you, leave it behind, and let me define who you are instead? That to me was significant. Will I let Jesus define me instead of allowing the pieces of my life and the many pieces of my life define who I am? Now that's my list, and that's personal to me. Uh, I would ask if you have a journal or a note card in front of you, what's your three? What is it that leads you, causes you to lead a compartmentalized life? Now, those are some of my big reasons why I lived with Jesus as part of my life. Uh, now I want to share with you the consequences that I had that I, when I was living with Jesus as part of my life, there was some major consequences. It wasn't without impact or effect in my life. So when I had Jesus as just part of my life, uh, I'll share it with you very quickly. And again, personal to me. They might not resonate with you, but I would ask, if you're keeping Jesus as part of your life, what consequences are you experiencing with that? The first one I would say was this. Joy was situational. My joy was completely situational because it's hard to have a meaningful, lasting joy in areas of your life that don't ultimately belong to God. A second consequence was my sin was very cyclical. It's hard to experience the power of God in areas of life that don't ultimately belong to God. And so I would have areas of sin where I would fight and I would battle and I would experience some semblance of victory for a few days, for a week, for a month, but then I'd go right back into the same old sin that I never said I would do again. So a consequence of Jesus as part of my life, my joy was situational, my sin was cyclical, my testimony was very sporadic. Meaning when people ask, Michael, how do you see Jesus? How do you see God at work in your life? Well, it was sporadic. I found myself living off of old stories. Well, let me tell you a story of like six years ago. Well, how about a story from like a week ago? How about a story from yesterday? And I found that my testimony was sporadic because it's hard to see God at work in areas of my life that were not actually given over to him. So I didn't really have anything to say. 
And lastly, uh, exhausted was my normal. Exhausted was my normal. That was a consequence of living with Jesus as part of my life. Because it's really tiring trying to manage three pieces, four pieces, five pieces, six pieces. Uh, And that's what I was doing for years and years. And it was just absolutely exhausting. Joy situational, sin was cyclical, testimony was sporadic, and I was exhausted. That was my normal. Now, for years, Jesus was part of my life, often a big part of my life, but what I've grown convinced of over these past two decades is that Jesus doesn't want to be part of my life. And I just want you to hear, and I know that sounds strange, but Jesus does not want to be part of your life. He does not at all want to be part of your life. What Jesus taught me, what he's still teaching me, and what he wants us to know is that he wants us to say, he is my life. He's not just part of my life. He's not a section or a piece of the pie. Jesus wants us to be able to say, he is my life. A.W. Tozer said it really well. It's either all of Christ or none of Christ. Jesus will either be Lord of all or will not be Lord at all. And I love that because it's just another reminder that Jesus was never intended or meant to be a part, a big part, a small part, or anything in between of my life. He is Lord. He is all of my life. Now, what are we hoping to accomplish with this series, Jesus is not part of my life? I'm very convinced uh, that God has more for you. I'm very convinced that God has more for all of us, but we won't be able to experience more of him when he only has part of us. We won't experience God when he only has part of us. And I, I firmly believe and I'm convinced that God has more of him for all of us So here is my hope, and this is just two words, and this is taken from someone else's title of a book, uh, All In. My hope is that six weeks from now, you and I would be able to say we're all in. We are absolutely all in, that I laugh at the idea of Jesus as part of my life anymore. I'm all in. Jesus is my life. My desire is that we'd go all in, that we'd not have Jesus as part of our life, a compartmentalized faith, but that we'd have, we declare Jesus is my life. Uh, Steve Timmis, uh, in a great book called I Wish Jesus Hadn't Said That, said this, following Jesus is a beautifully all-encompassing reality. There is no area of my life that is subject to God's saving sovereign care. That includes my relationships, my affections, my emotions, my ambitions, my work, my leisure, my time, my money, my resources. You name it, and Jesus made it all paid for it all, claims it all, and rules over it all. This is an altogether wonderful and liberating truth. That's my hope for you. That's my hope for me, for this entire church community, is that there would be 500 plus growing people who would say, Jesus is not part of my life. Jesus is my life. Jesus has taken over every aspect of who I am, every aspect of what I would do. Now, if you're going to be able to go all in as Jesus is life, not just part of your life, then you have a really big question to answer. Uh, And this might be not the first time you've heard this question, but how you answer this question is largely going to determine whether you're able to actually go all in. And the question is just simply this, can I trust Jesus with all of me all of the time? Can I, before I can say I'm going all in with Jesus, that he's not a piece He's not a part. He's everything. You have to be able to answer the question, can I actually trust him? Can I trust 
all of Jesus with all of me, when I say all of me, can I trust Jesus with my marriage? Can I trust Jesus with my singleness? Can I trust Jesus with my pain, my suffering, my brokenness? Can I trust Jesus with my past? Uh, can I trust Jesus with my future? Can I trust Jesus with my finances and my career, my dreams? How you answer that question of can I trust Jesus will largely determine, if not solely determine, your ability to go all in. At the end of the day, why Jesus remained part of my life rather than all of my life, I, I couldn't answer with conviction that I trusted him. So how do you answer that question today? Can you trust Jesus with all of you, with all of him? Now the beauty of trusting Jesus, trusting God, is that it frees us to live fully for him. When I look at some men in scripture, some women in scripture who lived fully for God, why they were able to do that is because their trust in God did not waver. 2 Timothy, this is Paul sitting in prison. That is why I'm suffering here in prison, but I'm not ashamed of it, for I know the one in whom I trust. Yeah, my life circumstance or situation doesn't look good. I'm in prison, and I've had a really hard road. But you know what? To no avail, to no account. Why? Because I know in whom I've placed my trust. And if this is where Jesus wants me, and if this is what Jesus wants me doing, and where he's placed me, then I trust him. I look at someone like Job, and I think many of us who are familiar with the story of Job would say, man, what a hard road. A man very familiar with suffering, but in Job 13, he says, though he slay me, I'm going to trust him. Though he slay me, yet I will trust him. Though none of this makes sense, though I am filled with questions, filled with doubts, filled with fears, though everything around me is completely falling apart, I trust him. So do you trust? How you answer that question will largely determine and shape your ability to go all in and not have Jesus as part of your life, but as Jesus as your life. Now, for me, I believe one of the primary reasons that so many have a hard time trusting God is because when we think about God, we just think wrongly about him. We either believe he's really pleased with us because of something we've done or he's disappointed in us for what we have, have or haven't done. And I would tell you this, both views are completely wrong. Both views are completely wrong. Both views of God are wrong because both views assume that we can do things that will change God's view and opinion of us, and we can't. It is really hard to trust someone when you don't know how they feel about you. And if you really believe that you can do things, good or bad, that will change how God feels about you, you won't be able to trust him. And what I wanted you to know, God has not changed his stance towards you. Your sin does not impact how God feels about you. Your spiritualness, your piety, your generosity, your sacrificial living or giving does not change God's posture towards you. It doesn't make him love you more, and your sin doesn't make him love you less. If you think God at all has changing views about you, it will be very difficult for you to say, I trust him. I can't trust someone when I don't know how they feel about me. Why so many have such a hard time trusting is because we just believe things about God that are just ultimately wrong. I wrote it down in my journal like this. Thinking wrongly about the creator will create in us an inability to trust him. 
if I'm thinking incorrectly, if I'm thinking wrongly about God as the creator, then that will create in me an inability to trust him. I want to spend just the next few minutes uh, sharing with you two two thoughts, two things of why can I fully trust Jesus with all of my life? Because if I can't, I'm going to have a hard time going all in. If I can't, Jesus will be a part of my life rather than my life. So I want to share with you two reasons of why I can fully trust Jesus with all of my life. Just two. And this is not the exhaustive list, but these are two big ones for me. Number one would be this. He commanded me to love all of him with all of me. He commanded me to love all of him with all of me. If you have a Bible, we'll put this on the screen. But I want to read to you what's known as the most important commandment. And it's in Mark chapter 12. I'm going to start reading at uh, verse 28. Jesus has been having a discussion with some spiritual leaders, some religious leaders, uh, about the subject of life after death. Following that conversation, uh, verse 28, one of the teachers of religious law was standing there listening to the debate. And he realized that Jesus had answered well. And so he asked, of all of the commandments, and he's referring to 613 Old Testament commandments, Of all of the commandments, which is most important? And Jesus replied, the most important commandment is this. Listen, he's quoting Deuteronomy. Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God is the one and only Lord. Verse 30, and you must love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength. The second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. And the teacher of the religious law replied, Well, well said, teacher. You have spoken the truth by saying that there is only one God and no other. And I know it is important to love him with all my heart, with all my understanding, with all my strength, and to love my neighbor as myself. This is more important than to offer all the burnt offerings and sacrifices required in the law. Verse 34, Realizing how much the man understood, Jesus said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Why is it that I can fully trust Jesus with all of me? Why is it that you can fully trust Jesus with all of your life? Number one, he commanded me to love all of him with all of me. I want to ask an honest question because people that I've talked to who are not Christians, who don't come to church or engage in Uh, church community wrestle with this. Is this command a bit odd? Is this command a bit off? Like if I were to say your job, your role, most important thing is you are to love me with all of who you are, all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That is the most important thing you could do. Most of you'd say, well, you're certainly an egotist, maybe like a megalomaniac like really into yourself. So is it odd to you that God would say, hey, the most important thing is you love me. The most important thing is your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength, everything of all of who you are, you have to love me. Now that might not seem odd to you, but to some people who are not familiar, don't have a relationship with God, they will listen to that verse and say, well, what kind of God is this that would actually demand that We love him. What kind of God is this? So it's an honest question. 
Now, my question in response to that would be this. If God is calling me to love all of him with all of me, heart, mind, soul, and strength, my question would be this. Is God God? Is God God? Meaning, if God is perfect, holy, eternal, is God perfect, holy, eternal creator, sustainer of all things, the most beautiful, purest being in existence? That's a small definition of God, but is God God? Is God all of those things? If the answer to this question is yes, and my follow-up question would be this, does God know that he's God? If he is God, does he know that he's God? I want you to stick with me on this. I know this, this is not a rabbit trail, I promise. Is God God? If he is, does God actually know that he's God? And it would seem to me a prerequisite to being God is knowing all things. So if God is God, he knows that he's God. So if he's God and he knows that he's God, the most loving thing that God could do for us would be to command us to give all of our love to the best. If God is God and he knows he's God, the most loving thing that this God could do for you is to command that we give our love to nothing less than the best. That we would give all of our love not to to lesser things, to temporal things. If God is God and he knows he's God, the most loving thing he would do for us is command that we give all of our love to the most purest being there is, God himself. Now, it would be unkind if God allowed us to love lesser things, to give ourselves to anything that would be second best. Louis Giglio wrote a great book called I Am. I am not, but I know I am. And he says this, when he calls us to glorify him, when he demands our complete unadulterated worship, he is not being egotistical. Rather, he is simply being God. And he is doing the best thing he could possibly do for us and that he is causing us to stake our claim on the most beautiful and glorious one in all of creation. Why can I trust God? Because he commands me to love him with all of who I am. And that command is rooted in the best thing for me is not to give my love to different pieces or parts that are lesser, but to give all of my love as Louis Giglio said, the most beautiful and glorious one in all of creation. That's one reason why I know I can trust, trust Jesus. One reason I know I can fully trust him is because he's commanded me to love all of him with all of me. And to be clear, the verse does say, with my heart, my soul, my mind, my strength. This is a picture of the totality of who we are. Not a piece of your mind, a piece of your heart, a piece of your uh, soul and strength. This is loving God with the totality of who we are. And the beauty of loving God with all of who we are, there's two things that happen. When we do that, when we actually love God with all of who we are, we're able to love all other loves with a more God-like love. When I am loving God with all of who I am, my wife benefits from that because I can love her more rightly. My kids benefit from that. My friends, my neighbors benefit from that. When I am loving God with all of who I am, I am able to love all other loves with a more God-like love. And I think, secondly, uh, of how loving God with all of who I am, uh, the impact that it has, we're able to love less things that are unlovely. Meaning, if I'm loving God with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength, 
I'm learning to love less, lesser things, namely sin. Thomas Chalmers, uh, I've quoted him before, is a Presbyterian pastor, and he said this, the only way to dispose the heart of an old affection is through the expulsive power of a new one. For years and years, uh, when I would be battling certain sins, it's like, I just don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to struggle with this anymore. And I would work, and I would fight, and I'd work, and I'd fight, and I would experience a semblance of victory for a few days, a week, however long it may have been. But I kept coming back to cycling in and, in and out of sin, in and out of sin. The only way to dispose the heart of an old affection is through the expulsive power of a new one. And so what I've discovered for me personally is rather than uh, trying to dispose sin in, in my life by trying harder and harder not to sin, the key to sinning less and less is found in actually loving God. So that's one reason, and I would share with you a second reason. That's the first reason of I know I can trust God because God has pointed me to, to him as the most important thing. And the second one I would just point you to is this. He gave all so that I could have all. How do I know I can trust Jesus? How do I know that if I go all in and say, I don't want Jesus as part of my life anymore, I, Jesus is my life, how can I, how can I honestly say I'm going to trust him? Well, the second reason is just that. He gave all so that I could have all. If you have a Bible, open up to John uh, chapter 15, or John chapter 10. I want to read you uh, a few verses uh, that seemed very confusing to the early listeners who were listening to Jesus uh, say these things. But he says in verse 1, I tell you the truth, anyone who sneaks over the wall of a shepherd rather than going through the gate must surely be a thief and a robber. But the one who enters through the gate uh, is the shepherd of the sheep. And the gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep recognizes his voice and come to him. He calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. And after he has gathered his own flock, he walks ahead of them, and they follow him because they know his voice. They won't follow a stranger. They will run from him because they don't know his voice. Verse 6, and those who heard Jesus use this illustration didn't understand what he meant. <laughs> and so he explained to them, I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. All who come before me were thieves and robbers, but the true sheep did not listen to them. Yes, I am the gate. Those who come in through me will be saved. They will come and go freely and will find good pastures. The thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy, but my purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd sacrifices his life for the sheep. A hired hand will run when he sees a wolf coming. He will abandon the sheep because they don't belong to him and he isn't their shepherd, and so the wolf attacks them and scatters the flock. The hired hand runs away because he's working only for the money and doesn't really care about the sheep. Verse 14, but I am the good shepherd. I know my own sheep and they know me. Just as my father knows me and I know the father, so I sacrifice my life for the sheep. How do I know that I can trust Jesus with all of my life? Not just a piece, not just a part, but with all of my life. Because he said repeatedly, I'm the good shepherd. I've gone out before you to lead you. And I'm the good shepherd. I don't run when trouble comes. When the wolf attacks, 
I don't bail. I don't quit. I don't look the other way. How do I know I can trust Jesus with all of my life, not just part of my life? Well, because the good shepherd laid down his life for me so that I could have life now and life eternal. Romans 8.32, Paul said it so well. Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? That's the second reason. He gave all so that I could have all. If you are having a difficult time answering the, can I really trust God? Can I really trust Jesus with my entire life, not just a part of my life, then I would say, you know what? You don't really need to look further than the cross of Christ. Again, quoting Louis Giglio, he said, the cross of Christ is the place where trust in God is born. The cross of Christ is the place where trust in God is born. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is an act of kindness from a loving and trustworthy God an undeniable demonstration of his goodness that we can cling to when our sight and understanding fail to make sense of the circumstances that surround us. And I really understand that circumstances have a way of dictating whether we can trust or we can't trust, but the cross of Christ screams to us, but you can trust me. Your circumstances don't look good. It's a painful season filled with all sorts of storms, but the cross of Christ says, regardless of your circumstances, look what Jesus has done. Look what the good shepherd has done in leading for you and protecting you and providing for you and caring for you, ultimately in laying down his life for you. This is why Paul is able to say in Galatians so well, as for me, may I never boast about anything except the cross of the Lord Jesus. That's where his trust was rooted in. That's where his trust was born, was in the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, trust is a choice we all make. If we choose not to trust Jesus, then Jesus will remain just part of who we are. He will remain part of our lives. But to those who choose to trust Jesus, you're going to experience the life that Jesus actually wants to give you. But if you just cling to, I can't trust him here, I can't trust him with this, you will miss Everything that Jesus has to show you, everything that Jesus has to reveal to you, everything that Jesus wants to walk with you through. Now, I realize that trust does not come easy. We often say that trust has to be earned before it can be given. So I'm going to ask you one final question. Has God done something or not done something that would lead you to declare, I can't trust him? Has, has God done something? where it's caused in you an inability to say, well, because of this, this situation, this circumstance. And this is not to say, hey, your pain doesn't count, your suffering doesn't count, your hurt, your disappointment, your frustration. I'm not saying that, but is there something that God has done? Because my response to that would be, well, let's, let's go back to what he has done. Let's go back to he gave all so that we could have all. And what Jesus has done will reshape and redefine how we walk through suffering, how we walk through pain and hurt and disappointment and frustration and loneliness and despair. For me, those are two reasons why I can stand before you today and say Jesus is not part of my life anymore. 
I can say I'm, I'm, I'm all in because I trust Jesus. And I trust Jesus specifically because he's commanded me to love him. And he's gave, Jesus gave his life for me. We're going to uh, close with some prayer. And as we're praying, uh, there's two thoughts I wanted to ask you to pray into. Two prayers I would ask you uh, to pray. Uh, the first one would be this. Ask God to unite all of you for all of him. If there's any compartmentalized living going on, compartmentalized faith going on, I would ask all of us to just simply pray, God, would you unite my heart for you? Uh, A psalm that I pray often with a good friend of mine is Psalm 86. Teach me your way, Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name can't tell you how many times I've prayed that again and again and again. God, give me an undivided heart. I don't want to be divided on how I live and divided on how I, I walk with you and understand you. So God, would you please grant me a heart that would be united, that would be all for you. So I would ask as we pray, and as you have been thinking about these things, that Jesus is not meant to be part of your life, but Jesus is your life Ask God to unite all of you for all of him by asking for an undivided heart. And the second, maybe this is just more of an invitation or a challenge, would be this. Bring all of you to all of him. So if you've been sitting here today and you're like, Jesus is such a part of my life and I don't want that anymore. I would ask you and invite you in this time of prayer and worship and communion, bring the pieces. Bring the pieces to Jesus. And Jesus, here's my marriage. Jesus, here's my future, here's my dreams. Jesus, here's my kids, here's my career, here's my dating, here's my singleness. Jesus, all of these pieces that I've been trying to manage and control, I just, I'm bringing you the pieces. And the beauty of when we bring Jesus the pieces and the parts of who we are, this is an incredible promise in 2 Corinthians. If anyone's in Christ, you're a new creation. The old is past, the old is gone, and the new has come. So I would invite you, if you realize this morning that you're living pieces and parts, bring those pieces and parts, and Jesus, I give these to you. I give all of this to you. Now, Jesus, will you reshape them how you want?